0: Welcome to Peace and Resist. You actually helped me out with voting info HQ early on. You did kind of talk it out in its very early stages, and it motivated me to to push and keep going after a month of two followers. And and now here we are talking and and I'm really excited to interview you. So thank you for giving me some time. Sure. Comedy is built in your nature, and it runs throughout your family. Your brother, Lieutenant Colonel Dave Rosner of the Marine Corps, was the only Jewish Marine comedian. What are some of your favorite bits that he did?
1: He was an observant Jew, like orthodox-ish. You know, Judaism comes in all these flavors. Yeah. And he had entire stand-up. He'd go around to Chabad's and, and temples and 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 do his bits there. Um, I watched a, a few he, then he also had, he'd do bits for military audiences. And he was in, he was in both Iraq wars. He was an intelligence officer and a public affairs officer. In his first tour, he had just gotten married. Oh. And he picked an assignment that um, kind of wasn't as, he wasn't fighting in the front lines because he thought right. it wasn't fair to his wife. But then his wife left him for another woman. And he's like, well, dang, I lost out on, on battle. <laughs> right. um, so he, he asked for different assignments in, in the second war. It worked out. It worked out for him.
0: One of his uh, jokes was, I'm the only marine who, when he kills, nobody dies. And that kind of plays on, on what you're saying there, with how he didn't want to be the front lines guy, but he still wanted to support the army, the military, the cause.
1: Yeah.
0: and he still did an incredible duty when that base was attacked. He went out there at the uh, at the request of the commanders, the leaders, and they said, "Look, our guys are shaken. We need laughter. We need jokes." And he went and and brought what was needed and lifted the morale. So what
1: what I liked better, what I found funniest, were his stories about um he 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 liked discipline. He asked to be sent to military school in high school. Hmm. And you military school is hellacious. New, New Mexico Military Academy down in Roswell, New Mexico. I've had several family members go there. and it, it, It's not fun.
0: It's almost hard to imagine without experiencing it. But the strictness, it's the, uh, I think, of full metal jacket and the boot camp and that strictness of the... Uh of yeah. camp officer and that that regiment, that um, that uniformity.
1: And he he tell stories that were funny and they were like poetry. Uh, talk uh, about the, the misery there. Like mm. um, he had a roommate who didn't wash his stuff. And like they, they had an inspection coming and the roommate's stuff, was I don't know where the roommate was, but his stuff was all like not in order. And yeah, Dave opened up his locker and the, he was hit with a wave of stank, and he just puked right there. Oh and, man! And that to me is like that seems like, you know, like <laughs> yeah, yeah, that, that's not not, not 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 for me. But no, but so it he liked people, but he also liked chaos. He liked yeah. pranking people, and he was he he was an excellent um, impersonator. Mm-hmm. So he would get on the phone and impersonate impersonate oh. generals.
0: Oh and my gosh.
1: Like Lieutenant That's great. to show up at you know General Cathcart's office saying, Yes, you wanted me, sir. And they're like, No, <laughs> he didn't.
0: Man, and, and he's the kind of character that could pull that off without getting in the wrong kind of
1: trouble. He kind of you know, he's all eventually. His career. Yeah. Um, half his co-workers loved him and half of them <laughs> did not
0: love him. He was a lightning rod,
1: yeah. But, I mean, that said, why he, that's one reason he enjoyed, uh, you know, wearing a yarmulke as a Marine, because yeah. people, he said, people come up to him and go, what's that beanie on your head there, sir? <laughs> and he'd be able to say, beanie, beanie, you call, you know, anyway. <laughs> Right.
0: You know, when he, uh, he was working the Shabbat houses, I saw a couple bits, and one of the ones, uh, he said, when I'm talking to folks here, you know, I say Jewish Marine, and they're waiting for me to say biologist, like And another one was uh, his radio handles. Do you know what his radio handles were, jokingly? Uh, no. Uh, Mazel Tov cocktail. Okay, I've heard that one. And full metal foreskin.
1: <laughs> yes, I've heard both of them, yes. My dad was a navigator bombardier flying A-bombs around in a B-36 and later H-bombs. Oh, wow. Jeez. Uh, uh, the healthy-sized H-bomb... Is a hundred times bigger than the bomb that destroyed Hiroshima. Jeez. And they go up and they go on training exercises and they get an envelope when they're in midair. He was part of Strategic Air Command. You got you should Google it. It's this deal where they used to have jets flying around on a on a ready to, if the bomb, if missiles were launched, they were ready to fly into Russia and nuke entire cities with one bomb. Right, because uh, of
0: uh, the mutually assured destruction.
1: That- right. There's a 1950s novel and movie called Failsafe mm. about a plane that gets into a U.S. plane that gets into Russia and they can't recall it because the, the, the pilots are suspicious of any recall efforts. And, and right. anyway, I mean, it was... A- oh, we love our, our international history,
0: our world history. We're thinking of even launching an international politics podcast to kind of do...
1: It's a pretty decent decent movie for Mm. I mean, it's really hard to watch a movie earlier than the (laughs) 80s because they're so slow. But plus, like they like to people who know about this stuff say that you blame it on MTV, which came on the air in 1981 with music Mm. videos. And in a music video, you might have 100 cuts in two minutes, which is what we're used to now. Yeah, fast stimuli, a lot of things happening. Yeah, but the the scenes go on forever, and they say oh they're so obvious in movies mm-hmm. earlier than the '80s. Mm-hmm. You know, like we watch superhero movies, like the Avengers Endgame had, you know, like three dozen, five dozen main characters, yeah, these battles, and we're we're mostly able to figure out what's going on, where everybody is, what's and but somebody from the '60s trying to watch what's going on might just barf. Yeah, from the 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 vertigo and the and because we were used to we're able to process visual information a lot faster.
0: The the juxtaposition is real because I watched uh, one or two of the Star Wars early last year and I was surprised because I loved them growing up. I had the VHS tapes and I watched them and I was surprised. It's like five scenes in one movie, you know. And it's but they're great scenes. They're they're incredible. But it's like they're really fun, uh, incredible, futuristic for the time. uh, All that but it's like, you know, now it's like those five scenes are in 10 minutes of Avengers Endgame, just without-
1: Yeah, yeah to it, to your ni- point. first Star Wars was 1977. Okay. And it was the first science fiction movie that looked plausible, like mm-hmm. where you didn't have to say, boy, these special effects are just pure shit, but-
0: <laughs> I'm curious, what drives you to engage in political discourse? Uh,
1: have you always been interested in politics or? I was a terrible student body president. And after that, I gave up on <laughs> politics okay. until Trump. Um, yeah. I had to, working on Kimmel, I, I started writing for Kimmel at the end of 2002. And, you know, that was the Bush era. And yeah. regardless of who is president, you're going to be writing political jokes. I became pretty well informed in 11 and a half years of writing for Kimmel. Mm. And then I got fired just in time for the rise of Trump. So I had a lot of spare time to watch the the Trump thing and be, if you, I lived in New York City for two and a half years in the eighties. And anybody who's ever lived in New York City already knew that Trump was a piece of shit. You wrote in uh, Huffington Post on
0: twenty in 2017 a really good article called "Super Empowered: How We Turned Into a Nation and a Planet of Assholes." You make a funny and, and a salient point regarding Aaron James, the author, who wrote uh, the author of the book "Assholes: A Theory." And your joke, your point was, if the author of "Assholes" writes a sequel specifically about you, you might be an asshole. <laughs> yeah, I
1: think there was it was he wrote the sequel was was I think called assholes, the Trump edition. Exactly, it was.
0: It was a theory on Trump, something like that. One of your quotes, which was just excellent. Tweets can spark protest and reform or violence and hate. Moving on, you spent time as a bouncer and mentioned in a Business Insider article from 2014 that you took a few bops to the head. Uh, What is most memorable from your time bouncing and, and how did you get into
1: it? I was going to a gym where these two big guys were bouncers and they were always telling stories about like the fun things they did, like breaking a sink with a guy's head. Huh, okay. And also like, I, I mean, everything I did from the age of 17 to into my early twenties was to try to either get a girlfriend or get laid or, or both. Right, looked. Like, you were focused. Uh, I was desperate, <laughs> but I noticed these guys, these big guys, That the weights I was lifting the same amount of weight that they were lifting, Mm. so I'm like, all right. So I don't weigh 220 pounds, but I'm as strong as they are. Maybe I could be a bouncer, right? And I started, and I'd be in a bar where I could maybe meet girls. Yeah, right. And I did the way to get hired as a bouncer was just to keep dropping by a bar, um, and be lucky enough to be there on the night where a bouncer has told the manager to fuck off and left the job. Gotcha. And eventually right that happened. I've had a series of jobs where maybe I'm not ideally suited, but I can make myself useful. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I was a 170 pound bouncer and, you know, so I wasn't great at throwing people out, but I made myself useful in other ways. I got really good at checking IDs and cleaning up barf. Okay, so for the
0: first one, in November 1991's edition of the Mega Society's News... You have done a huge amount of research. I'm a nerd. I love this stuff. Um, So I was was reading this, and uh, you were the editor for this, and you said that you have a fake ID update around November 1991. You broke 1,000 fake IDs caught in 1991, the Friday of like December 13th around that time. Apparently you worked at Sagebrush and other places, which we know Sagebrush, it's kind of local to us, we're familiar. A little too cool for me, but I still get it. You told a funny story that was like uh, a young man who looked really young, too young for the bar, came over. Uh, he couldn't- Ulysses? No, no, I, I don't know where it was, but you uh, you had him write down his name, you know, sign your name, yeah. you can sign your name. He couldn't spell his middle name right. And he's like, look, uh, I had a head injury. And you're, you and your manager are like, whatever, get out of here. You know, he comes back with a document saying he, like medical docs showing. He came back with a medical file
1: an inch thick detailing <laughs> the, his head injury. And he got a picture of beer bought for him. <laughs> by your yeah. So the deal is that most people, you can tell fairly quickly whether they're using a real ID or a fake ID. And at the time that I was doing my bar work, bars were where you went to hook up with people. It's no longer really that way because we have the internet, but bars were really it. So it was very essential that people be able to get into bars. So about one person in 90 would have a fake ID. Mm. And I I tried to determine whether somebody's ID was real or fake within, well, for most people, because most people are going to obviously be legit. Within five seconds and, you know, at least 10 seconds at the max, because if you take longer than that, customers get pissed, your bosses get pissed. Right. Um, so it's a lot of judgment calls. And really fast. And it's it's fun. and yeah. It's exciting. How fast can you make the call and still be accurate? Yeah. You have a little bit of your brother's love of chaos. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so but like every once in a while, you'd get one that was just totally borderline. And like I had a whole set of like tells as to whether an idea was real or fake. You know, that stuff as basic as matching up eyebrows, nose, ears. Um, right. Ask zodiac sign, mm-hmm. ask their friend what's their right. name. Sometimes you would still get a mixed signal and you couldn't decide. And I got way too into it. You know, if it's if it's such <laughs> a mixed sig- signal, you should probably just let that person in because yeah. You can't decide. Then maybe the ABC probably can't decide either. Though they Good can point, be right. the alcohol the, beverage the, control, the, yeah. the undercover cops who come in to see exactly. It. Um, So anyway, when it's borderline, the question always is: Is this person lying, or are they just really stupid? Mm. And the guy who with the head injury—I mean, <laughs> he wasn't stupid, but he did have a problem with thinking because he had a head injury. Yeah, he was slow. So that was one guy who had a problem with his middle name. So you have a YouTube show with your friend called Lance versus Rick.
0: What is your advice for maintaining friendships with uh, colliding political viewpoints?
1: Okay, well, I thought about it because you sent me the questions ahead of time. Um, um, By the way, I had a dream like two hours ago where I got flown to Vegas to do a three and a half minute interview with with Penn of Penn and Teller oh that's awesome and, yeah but I was as in dreams I was completely unprepared and I <laughs> realized that when I woke up that it's because of this interview coming up I think that's that's good for
0: us maybe we'll do an interview with you with Penn somehow I think that forebodes well awesome
1: but what was the question uh, so how do you, uh, what's your advice for maintaining friendship? Oh, okay. My advice is Points. to not have very many friends. I can't <laughs> afford to lose Lance. I understand that. <laughs> Lance and the director are really my two only friends right now, besides, you know, my wife and my kid yeah. and our dogs. Like he knows a huge amount of history. Yeah. Um, both history of art and the history of the time when the art was created. He is a phenomenal artist. Unbelievable artist, yeah. yeah he's, he's super great. Um, it, it's a little tragic for him because he's a great realist artist in a time where people, you know, that's not a, as big a deal as it was, you know, when Rembrandt was working. Right. There are more street styles right now. Pop art is really big. And, and also, if you want something that's hyper-realistic, then hire a bunch of coders to yeah, true. Send you a video game. True. Uh, do you have a favorite episode of the show? Probably the one where I, I broke a chair. Oh, out of anger or? or... Yeah, I, where I, I, the times where I totally flip out. Yeah, um, but awesome. we can't do those very often now. We can't do them because we're doing it socially isolated. Right. Um, but I used to do it in his studio, and I can only do that once because he's got all this art that's you know he's got tens of thousands of hours worth of art labor in there and I can't just be like breaking furniture and having pieces fly around.
0: That's a real bull in a China shop situation. Yeah. Yeah. Gotcha. And everybody, please uh, watch the show, watch Lance versus Rick on YouTube and I'll post the links uh, on my page and promote it and all too. Thank you. Yeah. Oh, of course. So go into your writing to your jobs. uh, You've written for the 2012 white house correspondents association dinner, uh, Jimmy Kimmel live the weakest link remote control to name a few shows you were we mentioned before the editor for the mega society's journal you won a wga award for best comedy variety for music awards
1: tributes which was with a special with the jimmy
0: kimmel live after the most of
1: the, most of the tv writing that i the, the tv writing that i most happy with proud of least yeah. um, least hacky is <laughs> is via via kimmel cool i wrote for three shows for him so well, well, what did you do what was that like what was do you have a favorite bit or did you love the process uh, what was it about okay, well the, there are bits that i helped come up with or came up with but i don't feel that i'm at liberty to claim them because they belong to the show my partner and i came up with one one prank call for cranky anchors that i'll take credit that we will take credit for <laughs> okay um, it went really well wanda sykes called a towing a tow yard yeah and complained that when she got her car back after it was towed uh somebody had left like an 18 inch turd in the back seat <laughs> and that that call she's great and the call went yes. real well because the guy like um <laughs> he went along with like he was defending the place for the first half of the call yeah and then after a while, he realized that this wasn't a normal call and he just went along with it. Oh, and, that's great. That's awesome. Um, so I'm, I'm really happy. with. And that was a, like some of the best shit we came up with was at the end of like 5 p.m. and we've been coming up with stuff all day and we're, we're cranky. And then that's sometimes the, the stuff you come up with when you're just kind of pissed off. Yeah. Like, what if there's a piece of shit in the back seat? <laughs> like, wait, what did you say?
0: <laughs> Well, that was good. Say that again. <laughs> you know, that's awesome. You mentioned a note too. When I was reading the Reader's Digest article, you mentioned with Weakest Link they had a quota for questions, and you decided that you were going to push. You were going to like quadruple the quota, but they based it off of rejections.
1: Well, I was too fan. I, I felt like yeah. I was too fancy for the show. Where I'd been, I'd written for a bunch of. of Quiz shows, and I was just about ready to sue Who Wants to Be a Millionaire that I'd yeah. been a contestant on. And as part of that research for leading to the lawsuit, I like I read like a hundred thousand Who Wants to Be a Millionaire questions from around the world to substantiate my claim. That, that yeah. Awesome. So I felt like I was a super pro and like they had a quota of 25 questions for weakest link. And they were simple, factual questions like what's the sooner state, you know, Oklahoma. Yeah. Yeah. The capital of what state is Salt Lake City? Really simple. Yeah. Like level one. So I was like, you know, I can do more than 25 of these questions in a day. And so, yeah, like I tried, there was a day when I tried to hit a hundred questions and I was like, and I'd slop through them because it didn't fucking matter. I thought like, all right, so say I write a hundred questions and 60 of them are usable compared to everybody else where they write 25 questions and, and 20 or 22 are usable. So I've got more rejects, but I've also done three times the usable work of anybody else.
0: Right, exactly. And I, I relate to that. That's why I mentioned this story. I
1: do relate to this a little bit. So anyway, this annoyed them. And it used to, for the first month or two I worked there, mm-hmm. the rejected questions you could X out of the system because they're no good. See, yep. right. at some point, they froze the system. See, so there's a thing called pilotware that all these TV shows use that, that tracks production material.
0: didn't know so that the
1: pilot is a multi multi-millionaire because he came oh. up with the software and they, anyway, they, they changed the parameters to this show's pilotware, so you couldn't, you could no longer X out your rejected questions. Gotcha. And then they decided to base your job performance on how many rejected questions you had and so i was quickly fired the but system changed right on Italy you it yeah. was the same week that i filed my lawsuit against another quiz show so the whole wow. thing you know, i you know, i just say i don't believe in most conspiracies yeah but that whole thing was pretty freaking coincidental there's something something going on there okay maybe i mean and you know yeah
0: yeah i spent time as an assistant private investigator okay. i, I kind of want to go back and i want to like work this trail for you i might i might see what i can uncover i'm, I'm
1: not i'm not that good i don't do it anymore I mean, I, like the, one of the like sometimes when somebody's huge in tv mm-hmm. there's this guy fred silverman who was known as the genius programming director for you know the, the the exec in charge of i think abc when abc put on roots and all he revolutionized abc i believe and all of television. right? But then his time passed and those people still have to have a job. So he became a, an executive producer on this shitty little game show, um, The Weakest Link. So I'd see Fred Silverman, you know, having his coffee next to craft services, wearing, you know, just a sweater, <laughs> like a regular guy. When he was um, the kingpin. Yeah. He was, he was the king of TV. Yeah. And now he's, you know, just a guy, but it's like, you know, I thought about, you know, You know, when I thought, like, did I get fired the week after I filed a lawsuit? You know, it's like, it's not worth me trying to figure it out because there's Fred Silverman right there. Yeah. And imagine how ruthless you had to be to be the head of a network.
0: Exactly. To be at the top, you have to be cold. You have to make cold decisions.
1: So if that guy is walking around my place of business and I get fired mysteriously, like, (laughs) Yeah. what is there to get to the bottom of? It's like, what am I going to do about it? And like, just move on to the next, you know, shitty show. In some cases, yes. a good show. If you have a job where you have to come up with stuff every day, like writing jokes, mm-hmm. you get used to coming up with stuff. And like
0: content creating and...
1: And you know that to get to the very best idea you might have, you should probably try to come up with like 20 things and then just take the best thing. Right. but it takes the 20 things to get to the best thing. So that model of of let's come up with 100 jokes for this scene and take the best three Um, or, you know, we don't even necessarily know which are the best three let's shoot eight of them and see which, which of them plays the funniest.
0: This is reassuring because we apply a lot of this to our show and uh, to our variety show that we do with, you know, we have like a hundred jokes and we pick one, we write out all these, we just have pages of joke options. And uh, the point is we have no training with this, but it's reassuring for us to hear that's- uh, that's
1: Like if you you watch Netflix, maybe not Netflix now, but Netflix say four years, five years ago, um, maybe there's a bunch of indie movies that end up on there because they're affordable. Netflix can, you know, make a deal for, I don't know, a hundred grand or to distribute the movie. Right. I don't know if that's the an accurate number, but any, you can look at indie movies and they're instructive and frustrating sometimes if the unsuccessful <laughs> indie movies yeah. say, if, if more money was riding on that movie, they would have done more rewrites mm, gotcha. Um like there are these scenes that almost work or they don't work because they've got cliches in them and and it's, somebody could have gone through and and replaced the cliches, the prat the obvious pratfall fall with like a less obvious pratfall. fall. Yeah, um, and, and if they
0: had the funding, they're picking from a pool of ten options with their funding. They get the funding,
1: they can pick from a pool of a hundred ideas. Yeah, or just bring in somebody to 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 goose it like. Yeah. Uh, what's his frickin' um kill Bill? What's his name? Fuck
0: uh Tarantino.
1: Yeah. Tarantino, you know, has done some of his best work as 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 a hired gun who comes in and puts in little weird mo- takes out regular moments that you've yep. seen a hundred times in movies. Yeah. And puts in a little weird moment, you know, like his is one of his most famous moments that's just not necessary but delightful is Samuel Jackson and, and Travolta talking about what they call Big Macs in France.
0: Yeah. Oh. Put in a little. Royale food. with cheese. Yeah. That's <laughs> yeah, great. <laughs> so, uh, what Einstein did when he was in the patent office, he described it as his worldly cloister where he came up with his most beautiful ideas.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Frickin', he's working in a patent office. He's looking at people's, he, He's. I think he's just graduated college, university. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. About two years,
0: he couldn't find a job. And I think then he got uh, the patent office job.
1: And so he was looking, he was examining people's inventions. Exactly. They were legit and worthy Learning. of a patent. And the thing that, that, that I find most shocking about his job is he works standing up. Hmm. You know, we have standing desks now, walking yeah. desks. Yep. back then at the patent office you you, you did your work at fucking eight hours a day or who knows how much like you didn't sit down you got a standing desk and einstein is standing for eight hours a day looking at people's stuff yeah like, well, oh, for yeah. me i kind of like it um i did you know like i've you know i've done a lot of decent thinking in really mm. tortured positions mm. in art class where yeah. <laughs> You know, I've been an art model for not lately, but for decades, where you're locked into. I, and I used to, I would pick like insane poses. <laughs> yeah. um, and they, if you pick a pose wrong, mm. you have to hold it for 20 or 25 minutes, it gets very painful. Right. And paint your neck a
0: type of way or
1: focus or, yeah. on to think about to help fo- to take your focus off of how much, how uncomfortable it is. Mm. So I would think about physics and also I would take IQ tests in my head. Wow. I'd find really hard IQ tests and and yeah. memorize the problems and then visualize them while I was in these stupid poses. That's but then, amazing. so I guess yeah. but probably having to stand up all day was was probably helpful to Einstein's focusing. Hmm. It makes
0: sense. Wow. Cause it required, it required the focus to get off, get your mind off of standing here in in your Case in this I, mean, I guess probably maybe everybody back then. Maybe I don't.
1: Know, I mean, it
0: seems. like it and he took it and kind of reversed it. And he's like, okay, well, I'm going to make this. I'm going to use this as a benefit. And uh, you know, uh, is your theory of everything? Is that your theory on informational cosmology, or is that yeah.
1: yeah, but and it's a very undeveloped theory. But uh, it's 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 well, that the universe is yeah um, an information processor, the same way you know, where it's made up of information that's being processed. Yeah. The same way that our minds are, you know, made up of information that our brain, our brains are processing. Yeah. The way you explained it, I read,
0: I don't remember exactly where I read it. It might've been in Noesis. It was a very fascinating take where you said, what if the universe is folding on itself and information is kind of getting lost through that to where we have like all this data that is basically dark
1: matter from these folding. Uh, Okay, so like, I think you can do a lot of of work by analogizing what happens in our brains and minds and what might happen in the universe. Exactly. The deal is, so your brain contains a lot of information, but it doesn't contain Your mind doesn't contain all of that information at any given time. Only so much of the information contained in your brain is actively being considered in your mind at any given moment. Right. So what happens to that information that's not under active scrutiny when it's not?
0: And is it fair to say, like in interstellar terms, that could create perception issues where we perceive something that isn't actually the case. If a universe looks to be near what we perceive as the start of time, well if time isn't actually starting at that point then so, okay so, yeah so, kind of
1: thing we, 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 I'm we, 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 simplifying the, it greatly the, 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 under IC informational cosmology the universe has an apparent age of about 13.8 billion years that it seems if looking the farther away you look the farther back in time you're looking. Right. Um, and it, if you do the math on all that, it looks like the universe looks as if it began expanding from basically nothing from a zero point. The Big Bang, essentially. 13.8 billion years ago. The idea of that, yeah. Yes. But my but informational cosmology says that that's more an informational age, an apparent age of the universe that's proportional to the amount of information in the universe.
0: And to my point, you run against the Big Bang. You are not on the Big Bang side. You
1: know, the the more time it goes on, the more I think that I'm not entirely against the Big Bang. I just don't think that there was one Big Bang 13.8 billion years. I think it's kind of a rolling bang where the universe keeps like boiling water.
0: Exactly. The rolling boil is how you described it. Exactly.